Welcome to our Bible study for Glendale Baptist Church. Uh, we are going to continue our studies in the book of Revelation, and today we will look at Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. So I'll read those verses, uh, Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worship God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage, uh, marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down to his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with, with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this chapter uh, consists really of three scenes, if not three separate visions. The first one is verses one through five, with the rejoicing uh, over, the great, over the destruction of the great prostitute. The second scene is the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is in verses six through 10. And then the third uh, scene is that of the, the rider on the, on the white horse, and that's in verses 11 through 21. What we're gonna do in this study is just look at the first two scenes. Both of them are scenes of really of worship, and there is a connection there. So we'll look at the first one. Uh, let's look at the first one. There are five things in particular we'll emphasize. And then the second one, uh, there are four points that we want to emphasize, some with uh, connecting points. So here's vision one. In the first vision, uh, there are probably, or there are obvious and probably intentional overtones to the scenes that we see in chapters four and five. And so we'll look at some of the, the correlations there and then show um, what makes this particular scene stand out or what makes it different. The first thing that's, that's consistent in this vision as it is in chapters four and five is the fact that God is portrayed as seated on the throne. That's, you know, in other words, he is seated 
as not only the sovereign ruler, but really he seated, he seated on the throne. And we see that uh, clearly in chapters uh, four and five, that God is seated on the throne. And then we have all of the, the, the things that take place around him. The second thing that's also car a carryover from uh, chapters four and five is we see some of the same angelic figures. In chapters four and five, we have the four living creatures, and then you have the 24 elders. And so they appear here as well. Uh, the third thing that we see that carries over from chapters four and five, but especially in chapter four, well, both of them. In chapter four, uh, the focal point of the worship of God is God is worshiped because he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. And then secondly, in, in chapter five, and we see this especially in verses nine through 14, the lion of the tribe of Judah slash the, the slain lamb is now the center of worship. And the reason he is the center of worship is because he alone is able to unveil the content of the scrolls. So in chapter four, God is worshiped. Uh, presumably we could say God the Father, but we see even from chapter one that Christ is the one that's also seated on the throne. But the triune God is the object of worship in chapter four of Revelation because he is God and because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Mm -hmm. And I've often made uh, the comment that this is a reflection of what worship was before the fall. And this is what worship ultimately is about, worshiping God as God because he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. In chapter five, the theme of redemption is, is, is central to that worship. Not only is the line of the tribe of Judah slash slain lamb worthy of receiving worship because he alone is able to unveil the contents of the seven scrolls, but also because he has redeemed his people. But here in Revelation 19, um, God the Father is worshiped because of his just judgments. So there's a carryover from chapter 18, where God is just in condemning the harlot. But he is, he is the, the object of worship because of his just judgment against the harlot. So in, um, as, as you look at it, it says um, in, in verse, uh, verses one and two, and I'll pick up in the B part of verse one. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the, the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his saints. So God is worshiped because he ultimately brings just judgment to the harlot and because he avenges the blood of the saints, all of the suffering of the saints. And remember early on in our studies, 
we emphasize that, um, and I think it was Dennis Johnson in his, his commentary, Triumph of the Lamb, he mentions that in chapter 6, it says of the, 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 the martyrs that they cry out from the throne of God, how long, O Lord? And in a sense, Revelation is intended to not only give, the, give comfort to the people of God as God's purposes are unveiled progressively throughout redemptive history, but it's also to affirm them that all evil in general and all evil against them will be vindicated by God. So in this scene of worship, God is worshiped and he is praised because he who has redeemed his people has brought final judgment against the, against the harlot and he has avenged the, 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 the loss of life and the blood of the saints. The fourth thing that we see here, and this is um, and especially in reference to uh, verse 3, in verse 3, it speaks of the uh, smoke from her, speaking of the harlot, goes up forever and ever. And this is indicative of the fact that her just judgment is irreversible and final. So there, there is no, that which is offensive to God, and that which was a corrupting force on the earth has finally been judged. Now we'll see it in greater detail later, but she, her, her judgment is forever. And it's, it's almost as a contrast to the, uh, the incense that's portrayed earlier in Revelation, where the smoke of the incense, which uh, John is told, that's the prayers of the saints that are, forever before the throne of God. So when God renews the earth and when God uh, removes all sources of, of offense to his holiness and to the people of God, their prayers are no longer going up. But what does go up forever and ever in essence is the judgment, the smoke of judgment of the harlot. So the prayers of the saints will be no more because we will be in perfect and eternal fellowship with God. But the judgment of uh, the sense of whether it's a, a literal smoke going up before the presence of God, I don't think that's the point. The point is that it is a thorough cleansing and her judgment is irreversible and eternal. Which brings us to the fifth thing about this first vision. The people of God and the angelic creatures say amen and hallelujah, not only as praise for God's justice, but one of the things that's manifest in the people of God, those who have been renewed by God, is that we, part of our being created in his image and then recreated for his glory, is that we love what God loves. And to love what God loves also means to hate what he hates. Part of our challenge in this world and part of our growth in grace and our growth in sanctification is learning to hate sin for its sinfulness. 
So this joining in, this is not, and it won't be understood by people who are necessarily outside, who are outside of Christ, because somehow rejoicing in destruction can't be reconciled. It's like you shouldn't, that's, you know, that's like a perverted thrill. But in essence, what we're doing, uh, the, the praise of the people of God and even of the angelic beings, which represent the voice of the people of God, is that that which honors him, we, we glorify in it. We, 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 are, we rejoice in what honors God. And equally, we hate what God hates and we hate what hates God. So all of a sudden in this, this, this eschatological moment, it is the purest expression, not only of our love for a holy God, but our love for the holiness of God. So we are not the ones that, uh, that are judging, God is judging. And we join with the unfallen angels in rejoicing in God's judgment, his just and holy judgment. And it's not by rote. It's because we truly will reach that point in, in, our, in our sanctification, in our glorification. We truly hate sin, sin for its sinfulness. And, and therefore, we rejoice in the fact that sin is getting what it deserves. Uh, we see throughout the scriptures that not only um, are we uh, told what God requires of us and and how we should conform our lives. But in various places, it talks about loving or being in agreement. So it's not just not doing something, but being in agreement with those who do that which is wrong. So um, to those who, who uh, commit various sins and then those who love those who do what is sinful, mm -hmm. that's part of our fallen nature. So in the eschaton, when God has redeemed us and we see the harlot for what it is and we see her receiving the judgment that she deserves, there is the holiness of God commuted or, or uh, communicated to us where we rejoice in holiness and therefore our hatred for sin is what it's supposed to be. And it's our hatred of sin, not just a personal vindictive sort of thing. It's not, it's not petty vindictiveness, just glad that they got their comeuppance. No, there is a beautiful hatred for sin for the sake of its sinfulness. And that's what's portrayed here. Now, that, uh, that's what leads us then to this second vision, which is in broad terms, it's the marriage feast of the bride. And as I mentioned, there are four things here, but they are kind of layered. And so the first thing to note is the threefold description. Because this is, even though it's a vision, it's as much auditory as it is visual. So there's a threefold description of the sound that John hears. Notice in verse uh, six, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And it seems as if these sounds are coming from one source. 
Notice he says a voice, and that voice is described in this threefold manner. The voice of a great multitude, the, war, uh, the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now, Dennis Johnson, again, is helpful here in his work in uh, Triumph of the Lamb, and Greg Beale's um, commentary says something similar. But what's reflected here are three things that are uh, reiterated throughout the book of Revelation. One, the voice of many, uh, uh, the voice of the multitude, the great multitude, is usually in reference to the redeemed. And we see that even in, in chapter uh, 19 and the very first verse. Uh, after this, uh, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. Uh, that's that imagery, that metaphor seen throughout the book of Revelation referring to the multitude of the saints, whether it's in worship and praise, but this is in reference to the multitude of the saints. Secondly, uh, when it refers to the, the voice of the sound of many waters, that actually corresponds to the voice of the, the Son of Man. In chapter 1 of Revelation, the initial imagery that John gets of, this, um, of the Son of Man corresponding to the, vision, the visions of the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. But in chapter 1, verse 15, it says this about him, that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice like the roar of many waters. So this refers to, so the, the, the voice of the multitude speaks of the, the multitude of the redeemed. The voice, the sounds of many waters refers to the Son of Man, which is um, a reference to the redeeming work of the Son of Man and the eschaton. And then thirdly, the sound of, um, the, the sound of uh, mighty peals of thunder. And I'm going to depart from uh, Dennis Johnson on this one. He equates it mostly with uh, the scene that you see at Mount Sinai and the giving of, of the law. But I see a couple of other points of reference here that is not just that, but let's look at the way the phrase is used in the book of Revelation itself in chapter 4, verse 5, and then also we'll look at chapter 8, verse 5. In chapter 4... And I'll begin, yeah, in, in, in verse 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne were, uh, uh, were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And then in chapter 8, uh, also in verse 5, uh, a description similar background but in verse 5 it says then the angel took the censer and filled filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder rumblings flashes of lightning and an earthquake now that is similar to what takes place on mount sinai but I think what, what uh, especially as we see it here in the book of Revelation, what brings those two scenes together is God is portrayed 
in the in, in either his throne room or the presence of his altar so that God is presented as sovereign judge. And that's, you know, so I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Dennis on this. I would just flesh it out a little more to say that rather than Sinai, which with Sinai, we certainly think in terms of the giving of the law. And there is a point of connection there, by the way, uh, because what's seen here is the God who has now prepared this, this, this wedding feast the, is the one who has judged the harlot and we have already made the connection between the covenant curses um, in, in the book of Exodus that are portrayed in the, the scenes of the seven seals and the trumpets and the bowls of wrath. So ultimately, this is God portrayed both on the seat, in the seat of judgment and his throne of glory. So he's the sovereign judge. So both of those are kind of wedded together. And one of the reasons it's important to, to see the scenes of, of um, the altar is because the exception, the altar is where God receives the, the sacrifice of atonement, the blood of atonement. So for those that he sees the blood of atonement, then th that's, where, that's what we're getting into with this, this that, that's where it's feastal, that's where it's festive. Whereas those who have received his judgment they, they are not represented on the, the altar of atonement. So God for them is the threatening sovereign judge portrayed not only at Mount Sinai, but that's the contrast that we see in the book of, of Hebrews where it says we have not come to a mountain that can't be touched where, th where there's thunder and lightning and, and even the people were afraid to go forth. But we have come to Mount Zion. And what's the difference? It's not God's judgment. The difference is God's wrath has been poured out for us on the Lamb. Therefore, his just judgment is averted. But for those that we see in the first five verses, the harlot and everything associated with, it, with her receives their just judgment. So here's what, here's what John hears in this almost from a singular source he see the, sees those three things coming together. The multitude represented by the voice of the multitude. The son of man represented by the sound of many waters. And he is the go-between be, between the multitude and the peals of thunder. He is the one who has averted the wrath of God. So in that singular sound, that singular auditory vision, what John sees coming together are the elements of God's justice and his grace. I remember that, or there's a great line in, in um, Romans that he is both just and the justifier of those who come to him by faith. And that's what we see coming together, converging in those three voices or those three sounds. The second thing to note is in verse uh, 6b all the way through verse 8, which is the announcement that is made from this, this 
triad of, of voices. Uh, so beginning in verse uh, 6b, and then we'll go all the way down to verse 8. It says, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. Oh, excuse me, uh, B, I'm sorry, I'm reading the earlier verses. Uh, in 6b, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. Uh, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wonderful. So, so this triad of sounds comes together to give this, this wonderful expression of praise and the announcement about the people of God. Now that brings us to a third thing that's that's worth noting. And by the way, um, this this announcement corresponds to, or, or really is a recapitulation of the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet in verse in chapter eleven, verses fifteen and seventeen, we have a similar expression of praise, uh, hallelujah to God, and, and it speaks of, of the celebration that is to come. So let's in fact look at at those uh, verses, chapter eleven, and we'll look at verse fifteen and verse seventeen. In verse fifteen, it says, "Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet." And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And then in verse 17, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord, Lord God Almighty, who is and was for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. So this is a recapitulation and a rephrasing of the same celebration. Now that the harlot is destroyed, as, as set forth in the visions, now God is praised and he is worshipped by his people. Now also, here's the third thing. As with the case of the harlot, the harlot is first mentioned in chapter 14, verse 8. But then she's more fully revealed for what she is in chapter 17, verse 1. So likewise here, the bride of the Lamb is introduced in verses 7 and 8. But she will be revealed or more clearly seen by John in chapter 21, verse 9. So we know that the bride of the Lamb are those who are the multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation whose, whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. But now she's introduced as the bride. But she will be seen more clearly as the bride in chapter 21. So in a similar way as, like I said, with the harlot, she's introduced in chapter 14, but she's described and revealed in greater detail in chapter 17. So here, the, the bride of the lamb is introduced and she will be more fully seen later. However, here's the fourth and final thing that we want to look at in verse 8. Now, I, I'm not going to get as much into verses 9 and 10, but we just want to really look at verse 8 uh, 
yeah, in verse eight and verses eight and nine, because I think that's that's powerful. And, and let me read those verses. It was granted to her. Uh, yeah, verse eight alone. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This is a wonderful testimony to the perseverance of the saints. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, beginning with the individual letters to the seven churches, we see the church, which is here portrayed as the bride. We see the bride as being challenged externally with physical threats, even to the point of being imprisoned and even martyred. But we also see her challenged internally with corruption and with compromise. So in the various letters, we see the churches that identify themselves with the wrong standard of measurement. We see them uh, not exercising the love that they should have exercised or their first love. So we see the church throughout the scriptures martyred or throughout the book of Revelation, martyred, challenged, impoverished in many cases, we see her challenged. We see her being called to separate herself from the mindset of the world. But ultimately, the righteous deeds of the church are like linen, fine linen. Now, there are two points or two subpoints that we want to make here concerning this fine linen. In the first place, the fine linen is in contrast to the luxuriousness of the harlot. The harlot had external, the external and outward appearance of luxury. We see that she is dressed in fine linens, she has gold and pearls, etc. But internally, she is full of corruption. So externally, and that's part of her seduction, that she looks good on the outside. By way of contrast, the church oftentimes is portrayed outwardly as being vulnerable. And that word vulnerable literally means hurtable. So she doesn't look oftentimes strong. She doesn't look appealing. But yet, she is described here as being clothed in fine linen. I think of the church that Jesus says, you know, you're, it says that I know you're poor, but you're rich. So in spite of your outward appearance, in spite of the struggles to do the right thing, the righteous deeds of the church stands out at the end of the eschaton, at the end of the age. And her righteous deeds, those things that, that may not get credit in the broader culture, doing good for the sake of good is now rewarded and recognized. So that's the first thing, this contrast between the appearance of the harlot and the appearance of the bride. Externally, if you look at the pages of history and you look at the pages of the newspapers and all of our sources, 
until the end, it looks like the harlot is the one that's the most attractive. But in the end, it's the harlot that's revealed as being wicked and, and despicable. And the one that was most despised during time is now the one that's dressed in fine linen. And again, by way of contrast, because what makes the harlot despicable, what makes her detestable is her immorality. What makes the church beautiful is her righteousness. But here's the second thing. Lest we think that somehow at the end of the scriptures, God is saying that we stand on the basis of our righteousness and our righteous deeds is the basis of our standing with God. No, that's not what is meant. When it says that the fine linen of uh, that's, that dresses the, the bride are her righteous deeds, that is a reminder to the church that our imperfect works and they are imperfect. Just go back through those letters again. Our imperfect works are covered by the perfect works and the perfect righteousness of our Savior. We will never love our neighbor to the degree that we should. But the fact that we work and strive to love our neighbor is covered by the perfect love of neighbor that's fulfilled in the person of Christ. We do not love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, but we do love him, and we manifest that love for him. And that imperfect love directed towards God is overlaid by the perfect, unchanging love of Christ. Now, when we are in the crucible of challenge and trial, it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't look like it. But what we see here at the end of redemptive history is that all of our efforts when that have not been appreciated by others, perhaps, and not even fully embraced by ourselves, but as we have strived or strove to, to love God and to love neighbor, imperfect as it is, he sees it through the righteousness of his son. And the beautiful thing that's portrayed here is that he takes our righteous, our, our righteous deeds and he portrays it in a way where we are dressed in them. And you think about that for a moment, and this is why I say the A part of it, it's in contrast to the outward deeds that adorns the harlot. But the B part of it is that it points us to the greater righteousness of Christ. Paul says this in the book of Philippians, that concerning the law, he says, I don't want to be found having a righteousness of my own but I want to be found having the righteousness of another. We do good, not so that we can be accepted, but God has made us accepted so that we can do good. Our good is never going to be good enough to earn anything if it stood on its own. As the Lord says in Isaiah, that our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
but our righteousness because we by faith look to the person and work of Christ, our righteousness never stands alone. Our righteousness is covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so in this one fleeting scene, in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride is allowed to be, to, to be dressed in her righteousness. And her righteousness is like fine, beautiful linen because it's pleasing to God. And the reason it's pleasing to God is because we have been washed by the blood of the lamb and his righteousness covers our righteousness as well. In the first vision, we see the people of God praising God for his just judgment against evil because we have now reached that eschatological moment where we love righteousness for its own sake and we hate sin for its own sake because that is part of our being not only created but recreated in the image of God in the likeness of his son. But in this second vision, we see this great image of this, this three-part voice coming together, representing the multitude that has been redeemed, the Son of Man who is the Redeemer, and the God of glory, and the God of the law, and the God of grace, accepting the voice of the Son of Man so that he can accept the voice of the multitude. And now the multitude who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are able to stand boldly in linen, fine linen, that is their righteous deeds that are supported and grounded in the perfect, unchanging righteousness of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, even now, even in this moment, let us not grow weary in doing good. And even now, let us not be seduced by the spirit of this age where we're not able to see evil for what it is and to hate it for what it is. Let's not be co-opted by the voices of the culture, political, cultural, and otherwise, where we give a pass to that which is evil. Let us rejoice in God's just judgment of sin wherever it lies and let us stand boldly in the righteousness of the one who lived for our righteousness and died for our sins. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, thanking you for the gift of salvation in him. Father, we thank you for your word where you remind us that we are moving towards a particular point in redemptive history for the glory of your justice and the glory of your grace. Continue to conform us to your word and to your will. Con continue to conform us to the image of your son so that we can see evil for what it is, whether it's in us or others, and that we can hate it for what it is. Thank you for your spirit who strengthens us to know and do your will. Let us not grow weary in 
the good that we do, even if it's not appreciated or understood by others. Most importantly, Father, we pray that we would continue to look to your son. And as we look to him by faith, that we would be strengthened for your service and your glory until you call us home. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And most of all, we thank you for your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.